I don't know about you, but I'm ready to get right into the Word of God. I'm excited to preach. This is week three of a three-part series called Awakening, and interestingly enough, this is the first message in the series that I get to preach. Let me just say, if you've been coming the last two Sundays and you never heard from me before, I am the lead pastor of this church, and I do usually preach. This has been weird. Uh, this has been exceptional, uh, and it's not for a lack of, of talented people that, that can preach, but I want you to know that I count this as one of the highest privileges and responsibilities of my life, to stand at this sacred desk and deliver the unchanging authoritative word of God to you. I count it as a high honor. And so for me to be out of the pulpit is, is unusual two weeks in a row, but two weeks ago, I had the privilege of having my dad here, and he kicked off the series for us. Um, I think he can preach a little bit. How about you? Man, we had a powerful service, uh, all of our services that Sunday morning. He launched us out of James 5.17 where it says Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And, and, he, and he led us into that charge that God does what he does in response to the prayers of faith. That the men and women of the Bible are, are not exceptional uh, from you and I, except that they prayed and believed God, and we can do the same. And then last week, Pastor Chris brought a great message about awakening, G gave us a little bit of the, the history of awakenings in the people of God, even recent American history of things that, that God has done, and he really challenged the church that, that there's things that we need to do, the, a heart place that we need to get to, to see a move of God in the earth. Last weekend while he was preaching, I wasn't here because I, I spent the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend away with two of my daughters, my oldest daughter, Morgan, my youngest daughter, Mally. We were, uh, we were summiting uh, some of the high peaks in, in the Adirondacks up in New York. In fact, I got a little video here just, just so you can see what I was doing. That was last Sunday morning while you were here. That's Algonquin. It's the second highest peak in New York. And first time my 14-year-old's ever done anything like that. She was pretty awesome. Let's go. And that's Morgan, our 20-year-old. Around 5,100 some feet elevation. We're 40 mile an hour winds. Yeah. There it is. There's the summit. I felt like, uh, yeah, I, I felt like Martin Luther King Jr. I, I could say I've been to the mountaintop, you know. <laughs> so, but that's what we were doing last weekend. While you were preaching and hearing a word about awakening, uh, we, we were up there just enjoying God and creation. Isn't it true the heavens declare the glory of God? I mean, what, what a beautiful sight to see up there. And I, today, I want to just, just pick up uh, where these guys have left off. I want to talk about awakening. Awakening is not a series about, uh, about getting up in the morning. It's not a series about not sleeping in church. Though both those things are good applications. You know, get up early and get to church on time and then don't fall asleep in church. That's, that's a good application. But we started this year, as we start every year, with a week of prayer. The first week of every year, we have a, a prayer emphasis. And then we launched into this three-week series about prayer. And we did it for one simple reason. It's because we believe that prayer is powerful. Let me, let me go a little farther than that and say we believe that everything God is going to do in this church, he does in response to prayer. 
I've said this a number of times before. I want to say it again today. This is not the most important service of the week for this church. Certainly the highest attended service, but the most important service of the week is the Wednesday night prayer meeting. I believe that everything God does for us, he does in response to our prayers and petitions that come in Wednesday nights. I believe Wednesday night is the place where, where vision is birthed, where, where the, the atmosphere for the Holy Spirit to operate is incubated. It's like our supernatural greenhouse on Wednesday nights where we just, we just grow the things of God in this house so that everybody else can come in on the weekend and experience what God wants to do. I believe in the power of prayer. I read a statement recently by uh, D.A. Carson in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And here's what he said about prayer. He said, we don't drift into spiritual life. We do not drift into disciplined prayer. We do not grow in prayer unless we plan to pray. That means we must set aside time to do nothing but pray. What we actually do reflects our highest priorities. That means that we can proclaim our commitment to prayer until the cows come home, but unless we actually pray, our actions disown our words. So we all know prayer is important, but how many of you know knowing you should pray and actually praying is two different things? Any parent can testify to go, yes, knowing, knowing what to do and actually doing it, two totally different things. Charles Wesley said this, He said, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. I believe that's true. God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. Bill Bright had this to say about prayer. He said, we must talk to God about men before we talk to men about God. You can do more than pray after you've prayed. But you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. And I believe God wants this to be a praying church. And so as we launch into week three here of this awakening series, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me for a few moments to the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter eight. And I want to read a story that if you've been serving the Lord for any length of time, this might be a familiar story to you. Maybe you've read it in Luke's gospel, but you can also read it in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel. Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to read the story today, beginning in verse 22. Here's what it says. On uh, one day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and they set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up. He rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Father, would you bless the reading of your word today? Give us ears to hear 
what the Spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. amen. I want to just walk through this story line by line and just just show you some of the things that God has impressed upon my heart as I meditated on it. Go back to verse 22 with me. There's something that troubles me about this story, and it's right here in the first verse of the story. Verse 22 says that on this particular day, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to the other side of the lake. I don't know if that bothers you, but it bothers me because I know what happens next. They get into a storm. They're fearing for their life. They might drown. And they didn't get into a bad situation because of disobedience. See, understand, if, if they had been running from God, if they had been rebelling against God, if they had been doing something Jesus told them not to do, then this storm makes sense. But I just wonder, is there anybody here today, you've had a storm that didn't make sense? Like, hey, I, I don't deserve this. Ever been there? Like, I, I got here following you. I mean, if this storm was like Jonah's storm, I get it. God told Jonah, I want you to go and preach to Nineveh. Jonah packed his bags, ran the opposite direction. He went to Tarshish, and, and so he jumped on a boat heading the opposite way from the will of God. He gets caught in a storm. They can't get the storm to stop. He acknowledges it was his fault. The sailors throw him overboard. He gets swallowed by a fish. He gets spit up on the shore. He cleans himself off, and he starts obeying God again. That makes sense. Because the Bible says godly sorrow leads to repentance. And sometimes God will allow sorrow in your life to get you to turn back to him, to go the right way. Come on, how many of you know sometimes you love your kids enough to make them take the gross medicine? Same with your father in heaven. But this, this is not that storm. This is not a storm like Jonah. This is a storm like Job. Job honored God. Job loved the Lord. In fact, in Job chapter 1, verse 8, we get, we get the, the beginning point of Job's troubles. It says in Job 1, 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. God's literally bragging to the devil about how much Job loves him and honors him and does all the right things. And then the devil says, well, the only reason that he loves you so much is because you bless him so much. Let me take away the blessing and he'll turn his back on you. And God said, okay, go ahead and try. Does that bother anybody but me? I mean, are y'all all more spiritual than me? Like that, that storm frustrates me. Thinking, God, why, why would you even let that happen? And we need to take away this truth. You need to always remember, church, we can't always equate problems with sinfulness. And you can't equate prosperity with God's favor. Because sometimes wicked people walk in blessing, and sometimes the righteous suffer. This is that moment for the disciples. They followed Jesus into this storm. They weren't rebelling. They weren't being disobedient. Look at verse 23. It says, and they, as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great 
danger. I like the way that Mark chapter 4 nuances this verse. When Mark tells it, it says a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. See, Mark's gospel is actually Peter's account. Mark wasn't there. He wrote later, but Peter was in the boat. Peter is a professional fisherman. He tells Mark, this wasn't just a squall. This was a furious squall. This was a squall that made grown men that are professional fishermen squall. All right, this, is, this was scary. Add furious, Mark. This was scary. The boat was nearly swamped. That's why it's so important that we pay close attention to Jesus in the story. Luke said, as we just read, as they sailed, he fell asleep. But again, you know, Peter says, Mark, make sure you understand, Jesus didn't just sleep as they sailed. When Mark writes it, he said, as the storm raged, Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. He didn't just fall asleep on our way into a storm. We were in a storm, and Jesus is sleeping in the stern of the boat with his head on a cushion. Get this picture in your mind. See, for the last two weeks, we've been talking about a move of God that causes an awakening in the church. But today, I want to talk to you about a move in the church that causes the awakening of the master. That's what we need today. We need to awaken the master. Know this. Jesus is not panicked. Jesus is not afraid. Understand that Jesus is not worried about your situation. In fact, the circumstance that rocks your world, it's rocking him to sleep. Understand, he is not now nor has he ever been out of control. And don't let the image in your mind of Jesus sleeping in a boat make you think for one moment that he doesn't care or that he's unconcerned or that he won't help you. The question is, will you awaken him with your cry? Will you call out to him from your desperation? Look at verse 4, 24. It says, the disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Now read these next three words out loud with me. He got up. One more time. He got up. Notice Jesus isn't stirred by your fear. He's stirred by your faith. He isn't moved by your concern. He moves in response to your cry. When they finally turned their attention away from straining against the oars, away from doing everything that they knew to do, all the things they had learned to do, after they had taken all of the the preventative measures to keep the boat from sinking, when they finally turned their attention to the master of the sea and they called out his name, he got up. There's another detail in the story that that Peter gives us in Mark's gospel that I, I think is so important. You don't get this in Luke, and you don't get it in Matthew. And so we get this idea that Jesus and the disciples are in a boat. There's 12 men plus Jesus, and they're going to the other side. But in Mark's gospel, it says in Mark 4, 36, 
there were also other boats with them. That changes the story. Now, now, now this storm is not just about the followers of Jesus rowing with Jesus in the storm. Now there's other people. I mean, if one boat is going to sink, all the boats are going to sink. If one boat is in a storm, all the boats are in a storm. So all of a sudden, this awakening becomes critical on a whole nother level. Think about it. Who woke up Jesus? The disciples, right? Those that were closest to him, those that had access to him, those that were in close proximity to Jesus. The people in the other boats can't wake up Jesus. We don't even know if they would have thought to wake up Jesus. We don't know if they prayed a prayer, if they hollered in his direction. Maybe they wouldn't even think to try. But hear this, church. A a true awakening will impact everyone. But it begins with those that are closest to Jesus. It starts with those that are in his boat. Can I encourage you? Don't forget whose boat you're in this morning. Don't forget whose boat you're in today. Not everybody has access. You're in a house of miracles this morning. You're in a place of praise. He has our full attention. That's not just a song we sing. That's a declaration that says, I might be going through a storm, but the master of the sea is right there within my reach. And if we will awaken the master with our cry, not only will he have an impact in our lives, but I'm going to promise you, it's going to change, it's going to change the culture. It's going to change, the, it's going to change what the, the weather and the wind is doing as it rages in our culture. Right now, our world, it feels like it's on fire. Twitter is on fire this morning with all of the, the issues that are going on in our world. But it's the people of God who have access and proximity to his presence that can awaken him. Look at verse 24 again. It says, he got up and he rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided and all was calm. Awakening the master, they saw the storm cease. And when Jesus stands up, on the bow of that vessel, and he calms the storm. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just do a miracle for the people in his boat. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't just do something supernatural for the guys that said, Master, Master, we're gonna drown, and all of a sudden, like, their boat just levitates above the waves? Like, he could have done that. I mean, he's walked on water. He could have just lifted them out of the storm, but he doesn't do that. He calms the storm. He changes the culture. That's what an awakening can do. That while the people of God press into the heart of God, all of a sudden people that are far from him, people that don't even know his name or aren't calling out to him, they feel the shift in the culture. It's up to us, those riding in the boat with Jesus, to bring the awakening that turns the tide and calms the storm. That's what 2 Chronicles 7.14 tells us. God said, if my people, those in my boat... Those who associate with me, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. The problem's not the world. The, the, the responsibilities on the church. If we'll humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways and seek his face, he says, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. I'll calm the seas. If my people will pray 
Now, for some of you theologians, you think this idea of waking up Jesus is ridiculous. Pastor Aaron, don't you know the Bible says in Psalm 121, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you never slumbers nor sleeps. Yeah, I know that verse. In fact, I was praying that verse last Sunday on the mountain. I was like, he will not let my foot slip. <laughs> I, was, I was claiming it. But some of you, you're thinking, okay, like I get what you're saying, but we don't really need to awaken God with our prayers. He's not sleeping on the job. Well, let me tell you, I'm not the first person to take this analogy and run with it. In fact, when you go back to Psalm 35, we find David crying out to God because of injustice that's been done to him. In fact, in verse 17 of Psalm 35, David's cry is this, how long, O Lord? How long will you look on? Have you ever prayed that prayer before? Like you're going, God, this is not right. This is unjust. How long are you going to let this happen? How long are you going to let these injustices and these atrocities take place? And then in verse 22, he gets desperate for God and he says, Lord, you have seen this. Do not be silent. Do not be far from me, Lord. Awake. And rise to my defense. Contend for me, my God and Lord. David said, it feels like you're sleeping. I know you're not sleeping because he also wrote Psalm 121. But in this moment, it feels like you're sleeping. God, awake. Isaiah chapter 51, the prophet said in verse 9, Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in the days gone by, as in generations of old. In other words, I've seen you do it before, but has your arm fallen asleep? Why are you not reaching out? Why are you not performing a miracle? Why are you not working on my behalf? Would you wake up, God? In Psalm 44, the psalmist begins by saying, we've heard the stories of all the miracles you've done for your people. And then he reminds God, we're your people too. You ever feel like you had to remind God of that? Read Psalm 44 on your own time. He's like, God, we're your people too. We trust you too. But look at what's happening. Our enemies are attacking us. They're overpowering us. We saw the way that you restored your people or healed your people and rescued them. We are your people too. And then in verse 17 of Psalm 44, the psalmist says, all this came upon us though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. In other words, he goes on in that chapter to say, if there was wickedness in our heart, God, you know our heart. If we were doing something wrong, you'd know that. But the psalmist is saying what the, the disciples were saying. You told us to get in the boat. We got here following you. We're your people too. God, why won't you come through for us? In verse 23, he cries out, Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Have you ever felt like you just wanted to shake God awake in your situation? You wouldn't be the first. If you're offended by that notion, I want you to know that Asaph, who wrote many of the Psalms, he, he said something far more offensive than I've even touched yet today. In Psalm 78, Asaph gives a, a history of God's people all the way back to Jacob and then Moses and, and how God led through, jo, uh, through Joshua and 
all the way through to King Saul. And what happened, every story he tells, like, you did something amazing for your people, and they had a victory, but then they turned their back on you. Then they rebelled, and then they got desperate, and they called out, and then you saved them again, but then they turned their back on you again. And then they got desperate, and they called out, and you saved them again, but then they turned their back on you again. And he gets all the way up to the, the story where it gets to the point of history with King David. And in Psalm 78, verse 65, he writes this, then the Lord awoke as from sleep, as a warrior wakes from the stupor of wine. That's right. Asaph associated God to a drunken warrior who wakes up from a stupor. <laughs> now, now, did God pass out drunk? Absolutely not. Is God asleep today? Absolutely not. But do not miss the imagery that the word of God is painting for us, and it's simply this. God rises and goes to war in response to the cries of his people. That's what he does. He rises and he goes to war on your behalf. I wanna ask the worship team to come back, and I wanna ask a question today. Would you be so bold as to awaken the warrior of heaven with your intercession? Verse 25 in our story in Luke 8. Jesus says, where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. I believe he's asking us today, where's your faith? Where is your faith? See, I believe that their intercession, their prayer, their cry to Jesus led to a greater revelation about who Jesus really is. Here's the revelation for them. Even the winds and the waves obey him. Like, understand, this isn't their first day on the job. They've seen Jesus do some amazing things. They know that Jesus has the ability to heal the sick by this point. In fact, they know that Jesus has the ability to raise the dead. Go back to Luke chapter 7. He interrupted a funeral for a little boy in the town of Nain. There are things they know God can do, but there is a limitation on their belief. They had no idea that he could also speak to nature and calm the storm. So my question is, what limitation have you put on his authority? Oh, you're, you're here today. You, you believe to some degree. I mean, he's in charge on some level. But what do you not believe he has the authority to do? What if today we got to a place of desperation that our cry could awaken the master of the sea? What if we called out to him today and we left this place with a greater revelation. And we said, who is this? I mean, I knew he was good, but I didn't know he could do that. Who is this? I want to challenge you today. Whatever storm you're facing in your life, go ahead and cry out. Cry out to the master of the sea. He said, I'm drowning. And some of you, you need to, you need to acknowledge your desperation.
lest we just keep striving. There's many people, they're not at this place of calling on God because they've still got one more idea. They still got one, one more. Maybe I can strain a little harder. Maybe I can row a little faster. Maybe if I try, maybe if I try this or if I do that, maybe, maybe we're not going down yet. Maybe if I get a counselor. Maybe if we just talk to somebody. The best thing you can do today, the most powerful thing you can do today is take a posture of surrender. Say, Jesus, I'm drowning. I'm drowning in debt. I'm drowning in drug addiction. I'm drowning in alcoholism. I'm drowning in perversion, in immorality. I'm drowning in in doubt and unbelief. I'm drowning in sickness and disease. Let your cry awaken the master. God wants to calm the seas. Not just for you, not just for me. God wants to do something here and now in those that have proximity, in those that are in the boat with him that will change the culture, that will calm the storms, that will touch a region. I believe that. I want to ask you to believe it with me today. Would you stand to your feet all over this room?